invite you to join me again in the book of Jeremiah, chapters 24 and 25 this morning. Jeremiah, chapters 24 and 25. You follow with me. First, we shall read the entirety of chapter 24. Ten verses. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. The other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs. The good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. And then in the 25th chapter, if you would, come down to the 8th verse. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a, hiss a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And now verses 15 and 16 in that 25th chapter. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, 
Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, help us now that we see this. As our brother prayed earlier with the Apostle Paul, give to us that spirit of wisdom and revelation. Show us things here that are for our good and for your glory. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I begin this morning by reminding you of Jeremiah's calling all the way back in chapter 1 at verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a, here's a phrase, a prophet to the nations. A prophet to the nations. Then in chapter 25, where we just read at verse 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. Now up to this point in the book, it's almost entirely been concerned with the matters of Jerusalem and Judah. Now while the promise to Abraham had been, in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed, the reality was Israel had failed so miserably that they were not a blessing to the nations. In fact, they couldn't even receive the blessing of the God who had called them and live faithfully to live under that blessing. They were under the curse of God for their absolute disobedience. But the Lord is not just the Lord of Israel. He is the Lord of the whole earth. That's not going to be until the 46th chapter that you find extended prophecies from Jeremiah about the nations. But you get just a little glimpse here. One brother put it this way, Judah's not listening. And now, therefore, it has to be taught a sharp lesson, the sharpest imaginable. It is to that task the disciplining of a willful, incorrigible Israel that the other nations are called. Their arrogance, and he's speaking of those nations, their arrogance and greed and cruelty are to be given free reign to bring it to its knees and eventually to its senses. They cannot destroy it as a nation, but they will destroy it as a kingdom. And then having accepted that call freely and with disgusting, lip-smacking relish, they in their turn will be judged by the God of all the nations. As these central chapters say, this is his word, not only to them, but also against them. Great, and I love this sentence, great is the mystery of freely chosen wickedness and of the way God uses it for his own good purposes. Did you follow that? 
Great is the mystery of freely chosen wickedness and of the way God uses it for his own purposes. As we read Jeremiah, as we try to wrestle with it and think through it, part of what it does to us is it offends us a bit and it troubles us a lot. And we're not exactly sure how to navigate because it points out a dynamic, a tension, if you will, in us as faithful believers. We affirm that God is in charge. We affirm, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. We affirm the sovereignty of our God. But following the Lord, trusting the Lord, obeying the Lord, we want it to be a thing where he tells us exactly how every single detail is going to work out. Preferably with charts, graphs, dates, times. And we find ourselves struggling when we don't get that. You see, trusting the Lord's promises often includes painful and difficult circumstances we must endure without any certainty of their ending on a timetable we would prefer. Isn't that true, though, for us? The Lord puts us in difficult circumstances, and our first prayer is, Lord, get me out. I mean, if that's what you want to do, but get me out. Quickly. Yesterday would have been great. Today's acceptable. I can make it till tomorrow. And Lord, if you're not going to do it that quick, at least tell me how long. You know, if I've got an end date, right? If I've got something out of here, I can endure anything just about if you give me a time that I know it's done. And I think the tension that we feel, and I think the tension even Jeremiah feels, he's not doubting the Lord's going to do what he's going to do. He's just wondering, how long, O oh Lord, when's this going to happen? And how's this all going to play out? First consideration in losing, you'll win. Now, this seems to be the very theme of this 24th chapter. The setting here is sometime during Zedekiah's reign, sometime between 597 and, say, 587, somewhere along in there. And what we get is a very straightforward thing, a picture of bad figs and good figs. Now, I wouldn't know a good fig from a bad one, I'm afraid. I have no personal experience with figs, other than in Newton's. <laughs> I, the only thing I know about figs is I remember the old story told of the Bedouin who had traveled all day through the desert, and it was evening, and he'd, he'd bedded down his camel, and he had his... Uh, rolled out his bed, and he's all he has to eat are figs. And he's lit his candle, and he 
reaches in his bag and he pulls out his first fig and he breaks it open and it's got a worm in it. He tosses it. And he reaches in and he breaks open the next one and there's another worm. And he repeats this about five times and he's down to his last fig and he blows out the candle. Good figs, bad figs. Now, I love the language that Jeremiah makes very vivid here, right? Some of these, one basket's so good, it's just stunning. They're the first of the figs, and they're delicious, and they're wonderful. And then the other bag, the other basket smells so bad, is so awful, they're absolutely inedible. And out of this, he's given a lesson. What's the lesson? Verse 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good, now notice who's the good, the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. What does he say about them? I'll set my eyes on them for good. I'll bring them back to this land. I'll build them up, not tear them down. I'll plant them, not pluck them up. I'll give them a heart to know that I'm the Lord. They shall be my people. I'll be their God. They will return to me with their whole heart. But who's the bad figs? Everybody left in Jerusalem. Everybody who's not gone into exile. Now, folks, you understand what crisis this creates in the minds and hearts of the people there in Jerusalem. We're the good people. We're still here. We're going to temple. We, we're trying to do the right thing, although we've mingled it with all of our idolatries, but we're in the land, and he gave us the land, and he gave us the temple. In fact, we've got our saying, our little ditty, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, can't touch us, temple of the Lord. No, actually, you're a bunch of rotten figs. What? You're doomed. Herein is a lesson. It's a lesson echoed throughout the text of Scripture. You know, the servants of the Lord, we at times have what I would call mightily inflated visions of ourselves and our relative importance and godliness. What in the world would the Lord do without me? Now, we may not say it that crassly, but we'll say it other ways. What in the world would the church do without me? What in the world would other believers do without me? I'm the only one who's really serious about all this. You know, I love running into folks who are the only ones serious about everything in the kingdom. I'm lying. That's an exhausting proposition. Super spiritual people are exhausting. Elijah went down this path, right? He has the challenge to the prophets and priests of Baal, and the Lord answers mightily, and then he, in the midst of all that, that glorious outcome, finds out that Jezebel's still on the throne and wants him dead and does the manliest thing he can think of. He runs away. God can rain down fire from heaven, consume the entire sacrifice. God can cause Israel, and Israel wasn't even faithful after this, but cause them to praise his name 
and Elijah freaks out because Jezebel wants him dead. And he runs off and hides. And the Lord comes to him, 1 Kings 19, what are you doing here, Elijah? Remember his answer? I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Now you've got to do this with a little tear in your voice. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your props. Yes, this is all true with the sword. Now here's where he gets whiny. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Poor pitiful me. And then the Lord speaks to him deals with him, tells him to go back, and at the 18th verse of 1 Kings 19, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Son, you're not alone. Christian, you're not alone. And oh, by the by, you're not all that good. The idea of the remnant, that the Lord always keeps himself a people. The remnant here in Jeremiah are those who are cast out in exile. Now, see, this seems so out of kelter. How in the world can they be the remnant? They're not in the promised land. We're in the promised land, but we're not the remnant? No, you're not. You're doomed. And this God is going to bring back those out of that captivity. But, folks, this is seen throughout the Scripture. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, after they'd finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them, uh, take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree as it is written, after I, this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins. I'll restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And this is the whole argument, what do you do with the Gentiles? James, the elder at the church at Jerusalem, looks at the Gentiles and said, this is the fulfillment of the promise of the remnant. The remnant isn't just Israel, the remnant are all these unclean Gentiles who believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter echoes this, 1 Peter 1, when he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, and then lists all the places they are. Paul in Romans 11 will speak at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. You see, Jeremiah depicts this remnant as a people who are going to be filled with the grace and kindness of God, even though they're in a foreign land. Verse 8, excuse, excuse me, verse 6, I'll set my eyes on them for good. I'll bring them back to this land. I'll build them up, not tear them down. I'll plant them, not pluck them up. I'll give them a heart. Now, this is what's intriguing. Listen to this. I'll give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. They'll be my people. I'll be their God for they'll return to me with their whole heart. They'll return to me with their whole heart. And was this not the crisis 
in Judah. Nobody seemed to have a heart for the Lord. And he sends them off into exile. And in exile, he'll work in them to give them a heart for himself. Christian, let me let you in on a little secret here. Your life, at times, will look nothing like you thought it was going to look. Where you are, what you're doing, what's going on around you, is nothing you would have planned or chosen for yourself. That does not mean that God has failed. That does not mean that you've messed up. It simply means you have to trust the promise even when your circumstances don't look the way you want them or thought they ought to look. That, my friend, will lead you to disastrous places. I'll give them a heart to know I'm the Lord. You see that, in essence, this is a, a, a type, if you will, of justification. They'll know me, they'll love me, I'll change them, I'll do things for them. It's to know Him. I'm excited we have one of our Sunday school classes doing Jim Packer's Knowing God. And these words, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What's the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. This is what the Lord says. Not, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. My friend, understand that even when it takes you paths you would not have chosen, that doesn't mean that God's promises fail. Faithfulness is living and trusting what He says, even if the path is not the one you've picked. The old Puritan way of saying this is you've got to learn to trust God when there's a crook in the lot. That's a peculiar English phrase. What he meant was this, here's your lot and you think you're headed this way and everything looks lovely and suddenly it curves. There's a crook, not a crook as in a thief, a turn, a detour, a change that you didn't like, you didn't want, you weren't looking for, and yet this is how God deals. Hmm. Second part, second consideration. As we consider that in losing we win. This consideration shows up many times in Jeremiah, but basically how long, O oh Lord? The first part of chapter 25, the first 14 verses. This is a backing up, by the way. This is earlier than chapter 24. Chapter 24 is during Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king. Chapter 25 is during the fourth year of Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim reigns 11 years, so there's seven more years of Jehoiakim, and then 
uh, three months of Jehoiakim, and then you get Zedekiah who does 11 years. So this is some years prior. And here's what comes up. They're not certain what the Lord's going to do. Jehoiakim, an Egyptian appointee, has an uncertain future. Now what Jeremiah tells us in these first few verses is that he's done his job. He's delivered the word of the Lord, but they have not listened. Verse 7, you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And he talks about Nebuchadnezzar, and they're scared of Nebuchadnezzar, and they're worried, is God not in control? And then you read verse 9. Behold, I will send, this is the Lord speaking, for all the tribes of the north, declare as the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, what's the next two words? My servant. What? Nebuchadnezzar? The king of Babylon? The biggest, baddest, meanest pagan we can imagine? Who at one time was a horrific general who rained down disaster and death? Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And then you read these words. How long will this last? Verse 12. After 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. How long? 70 years. Can I point something out? This is what gave Daniel hope to pray. And remember, Daniel... His companions, the ones we know as Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego by their Babylonian or Chaldean names, are those who are going to be brought through. They're the good figs. They're going to be all right. And Daniel, you read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amede, who was made king over the realm of the, Bab of the Chaldeans, excuse me, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, I, I'm not, I, I promise I'm not going to preach two sermons, but I've got to tell you, Daniel 9 will do things for you, friend. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, and then you read His confession. Now let me just make a little note here. Daniel believed God would do what he said he'd do. And Daniel prayed then that God would do what he said he would do. Can I let you in on a little thing here? There's no contradiction between God acting sovereignly and you and I acting the way we ought to act in dependence 
I've had people say, well, if God's in charge, why do you pray? Because a sovereign God tells you to pray, you don't argue. You pray. Well, I think you ought to do it differently, and I'm thankful you're not God and He is. Shut your mouth. Bow the knee. He's king, you're not. He's the eternal almighty God, you're dust. Do what he tells you to do. Now whether 70 years is a precise number, a general number, the period's about 66 years depending on how you do it, although it's 70 years almost exactly if you reckon it from the destruction of the temple in 586 to its rebuilding or rededicating in 516. Whatever the case, 70 years seems like an awful long time. By the way, it seems less when you're living it. Jeremiah would not see the restoration. Christian, herein lies the question, how long, O Lord, until the Lord says, you and I may not live to see all that God may do in glory, power, judgment, or salvation among our people, among our family, among our friends. Are we going to live faithfully if we're one of those who has to die, if you will, symbolically, during the 70 years? You see, we all want to be the folks at the end of the 70 years. We want to be the ones to see the Lord do great, glorious, wonderful things. But my question is, will you be faithful even when you don't get to it? Will you do what's before you to do? How long, O oh Lord, until the Lord is done? And then the final consideration. Drunken disaster. From verse 15 to the end of the chapter, we are told it begins, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you Drink it. They'll drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. My brothers and sisters, you're saying, okay, but how does all this link? Okay, think back with me. What's our struggle? We want to know specifically what the Lord's going to do. We want dates. We want times. We want specific guidance. We struggle to live faithfully if we don't get all the information we'd like. And we are called to live faithfully based on merely what God tells us He's going to do. Not the timing of how He's going to do it. And we may be the good figs that go through a difficult, difficult time in a place we don't want to be and the Lord saves us. And we also may be among those who wonder how long is this going to last. We may be the ones that live during a time when it looks like God's not doing all that we would hope that He would do. Will we be faithful? But, oh, Christian, can you live and trust that God will indeed cause the nations to drink the cup of His wrath? What more poetic 
accurate description of the fall of nations than this. They'll drink, stagger, and be crazed. I don't know if anybody's going to run without a political slogan, but I kind of like it. Because that's what I feel like the next couple of years are going to be like. Right? Drunk, staggered, crazed. And what he does, and I won't go into all, but notice sometime when you've got a moment, start at verse, say, 17, and circle every time you see the word all. Verse 17, verse 19, verse 20. You just go through the all, 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 all. And then there's this list of nations. It starts with this. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do to Jerusalem and Judah. They're going to get it. But oh, by the way, they're not the only ones. Pharaoh and Egypt are going to get it. The kings of the land of Uz, that's probably northern Arabia. The Philistines, the Edomites, uh, Tyre, Sidon, Dedan, Temah, Buzz, Arabia, Zimri, Elam, Media. Oh, and by the way, Babylon, verse 26, and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. My friend, the prophetic perspective on God's historical judgment is not so much a blueprint about the future as a revelation about God's purpose. Judgment in the historical process can be self-incurred. In other words, we bring it on ourselves, but its moral dimension is shaped by a creator. In God's providence, God is not merely caring for his people, although he is always for their good, that is true. But God's work in history is likely more complicated and more subtle than we actually can recognize. We want straightforward cause-effect ideas. And this is why Jesus will say in Luke 13, there were some present at that time, Luke gives this account, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? You think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. My friend, hear me when I say this. God is judging in time and on earth and through history. And sometimes we can look back and see and I think in some ways, clearly we see. The absolute demolition of the Iron Curtain. The destruction of what was considered the Soviet Union. I cannot help but look at that and recall Psalm 2. They, they say, let us break his bands asunder. Let us cast his cords from us. A nation that said there is no God. We are atheists to our core. We defy this God. And I cannot help but hear the sound of divine laughter. But my friends, as we watch it play out, we may not see exactly what's going on. And we must be content with that. 
And rather than arrogantly saying, well, that's what you get when you defy the Lord, there's probably some truth to that. But do you know how cocky that sounds? What you ought to be doing is trembling and saying, oh, Lord, let me not be a fool. Oh, Lord, let me repent of my own sin. I'm bad enough. Oh, Lord, humble me. Now, I know some of you are wondering, how are you going to get from here to talking about the Lord's Supper? Because we're doing the Lord's Supper today. It's not hard. Because in this reference, something else comes to mind. As you and I, and this is our calling, brothers and sisters, we live in this world. There are times that I wish, I, I really pray, I, I want the Lord to get his enemies, right? I want him to bring down judgment on those who are bringing problems and stresses and wickedness in this world. I pray the Lord would frustrate them. I pray he would judge them unto life and save them or judge them unto death and stop them from doing their wickedness. But we have to leave that in his hands. Right? But oh, there's something else that stands out here. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations drink from it. And in Matthew 26, I read an account about our Savior in Gethsemane where he's brought his disciples and he's brought the three troublemakers, Peter, James, and John, the ones most likely to get in trouble, closer because that's what you do when you got a group and they're a problem you always keep the ones that are the biggest troublemakers closest to you so i don't buy that whole idea this is the inner circle these are the ones he was closest to no these are the three that are most likely to mess this thing up keep them closer and he goes to pray and i read in verse 39 going a little farther he fell on his face and prayed saying my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What cup? The richness of the Old Testament imagery here must be brought to bear. The cup of the wine of the wrath of Almighty God. I look down in the 42nd verse of Matthew 26. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What does this cup of wrath have to do with us? Now, nothing. If we're his. For Christ drank the entire cup of the wrath of God for his people. My friend, a cup of wrath is stored away for every sinner who will not repent. But for everyone who does, the cup of the wrath of God has been drained. There is no more wrath for the Christian. There is no wrath at all. For the Christian. 
For the Son of God has accepted in himself, in his own suffering, in his own body, on the cross, the punishment of God due sinners. He dies for his people. Christian, your sins. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, your sin not in part, but in whole. Nailed to the cross. Bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. What we do in the Lord's table today is celebrate that our sins are forgiven in Christ. That the propitiating death of Christ on the cross, Christ dying on our behalf, satisfies the just, righteous judgment of God. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Christian, this is why I've said to you over and over again, somebody wants to know when you were saved. It's okay to tell them 2,000 years ago. On a hill in the city dump outside Jerusalem with a stench of garbage and the stench of corpses and the stench of death, the Son of God lays down His life for His people. And thus we are saved. As we take the Lord's table together, this is for you, Christian. This is to celebrate what is done for you. Done, finished, over with. Rest. Rest. This is your glory, your salvation. This is liberation. Let's pray. As we pray, I'd ask the deacons who are assisting today if they'd come join me here. I believe there are places marked for you, fellows, your names on the seat there. Our Father, we rejoice that in these next few moments we may joyfully, happily, delightedly receive these elements nothing shall change in any of these things we consume they remain exactly what they are both physically and even spiritually they are merely symbols and yet Lord when we in faith partake of these you do our souls good you remind us that we are saved by the body and blood of your Son. You remind us of the cost of our salvation. You remind us that in light of such glorious saving work that we are to live lives that reflect your glory and honor. Oh, great God, you have saved us. The Passover angel has already come and gone. 
the spilled blood of your Son has covered us. We are rescued by his saving act. Lord, may we never discount the seriousness of your wrath. At the same time, may we never doubt the gloriousness of what you have done for us in Christ, who received what was due us, that we may have all that he is. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.